Well, I think we would all agree that a need for wisdom in our own lives is very, very important. And I think we all want to be wise. We don't always know how, but I think we want to be wise. We want to pursue wisdom. And this text this morning is going to teach us how and what wisdom looks like and how to live a life characterized by it. David Mathis, in an article called Finding a Level Head in a Hectic World, underscores our need for wisdom when he writes the following. He says, We're in great need today of Christians with sober minds. As the swirling winds of religious pluralism and progressive tolerance meet with the gales of globalization, a parade of new gadgets, and the constant drip of round-the-clock news creation... We're more prone than ever to diversion and distraction. And with it comes muddle-headedness and outright confusion. It says our culture is just inundated with this nonstop distraction impulse. And with that, the removal of wisdom often happens. And we lose our clear heads and our level-headed thinking. He goes on to write, We're not sure whether to worry about the incessant drumbeats of secularism or the true-to-the-Quran Islam or whether to just drown our clouded and anxious minds in Pinterest, Candy Crush, or football on the tube five nights a week. Wisdom has always been in high demand, but now the supply is at a record low. Well, that's why this text is written. This text is written to help wake us up to the need to pursue wisdom and to live a life characterized by it. We're breaking our way through Ephesians chunk by chunk, and we find ourselves in chapter 5, verses 15 to 21 this morning. Just to pull up for a second and get the bird's eye view of where we've been and where, where the, the text has brought us so far. In chapters 1 through 3, you remember Paul is laying a foundation for the Christian life by describing all the gospel blessings that we have in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 4, he makes a transition to talking about how the gospel is to shape our lives. So chapters 1 through 3 is what, it's, what it means to be in Christ. And chapters 4 through 6 roughly tell us what it means to live for Christ. In Christ, then for Christ. And that order is very important. Because as we've seen over and over again in this journey through Ephesians, you don't live for Christ to get in Christ. Rather, you are in Christ and then you live for Christ. The Christian life is not lived in order to be saved. It's lived because we are saved. The Christian life's not the foundation of our salvation, but it is a necessary evidence. The gospel that saves us is the gospel that changes us. And so in light of the gospel that we see in chapters 1 through 3, we are called to walk or live a certain way. And that verb walk shows up again and again in these later chapters. We've seen it a number of times as we made our way through chapters 4 and 5. For instance, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So we're called to walk, and we saw that we were called to walk in unity. Chapter 4, verse 17, this shows up again. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There's, there is a call to walk in holiness. We're called to walk in love. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. We're also called, as Pastor Jonathan preached to us last week, to walk in the light. Verses 7 
and 8 of chapter 5. Therefore do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then this morning, verse 15 of chapter 5, look carefully then how you walk. You think Paul's concerned with how we live? (laughs) Think Paul's concerned with our behavior being impacted by the gospel of Christ? Listen, that's Christianity. Christianity means we embrace a body of doctrine that Paul lays out in chapter 1, verses 3, about, or, or chapters 1 through 3, about how God has saved us in Christ and what the world's about and why, where, where he's taking the whole redemptive plan that he's initiated in Christ and brought that to being in the church and how the church is to manifest the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers and we're to live in a certain way and be a, a testimony and an image of God and his grace and his salvation and his power to the world. I mean... If, the, if that doesn't change some things about us, if our lives aren't being altered by that truth, then we haven't embraced that truth. So the Christian life is meant to be something that we grasp with our heads, but that works its way down into our hearts and eventually out into our lives. And so we've seen that in a number of areas, and this morning we're going to see it in the area of wisdom. might be helpful to define what that word means, right? What is wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? Well, it's been said that being wise is knowing the right thing to do when the rules don't apply. Or we could say it another thing, another way, it's competency regarding the realities of life. It's being able to navigate the world as it is in light of the God who is. That's wisdom. Knowing God, knowing yourself, knowing your world, and living in a way that's consistent with all of those things in such a way that your life functions in a world that is broken and thrives in a world that is fallen. The idea of wisdom has already come up three times in Ephesians. We see it chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 3, verse 10. I won't take time to read those verses again. But wisdom refers in these verses to the wisdom that God gives us for insight into the true nature of his plan. This is what conversion is all about. This is what, this is what it means to become a Christian. It means to wake up to the reality that there is a God who rules and reigns over the world. And the world, and, and I, I can remember even as a 15-year-old kid, not raised in the church, no Christian background, I recognized by God's grace as the Spirit began working in me, that I profoundly lacked wisdom. I didn't know anything about anything. And all of a sudden, under the preaching of the gospel, I'm beginning to hear about a God who created the world and rules over the world and a Jesus who came into the world to, to, to rescue us from sin. And that explained to me why the world's so broken and fractured and disoriented and twisted and backward sometimes and why it doesn't work the way it should. Things don't happen the way they should happen. Then I began to understand that there was a God who has a plan for redemption that he's bringing to pass over the course of human history that ultimately ends in the rescue of a people and the rescue of a world to the praise of his glorious grace. And that's what Ephesians is about. I didn't know it back then as a 15-year-old dumb kid, but but, but over the course of your life, As a Christian, this is what God is teaching you. He's leading you into greater understanding and insight into what he's doing. The ultimate difference between the wise and the unwise, then, is whether or not they are consciously and intentionally living their lives within the story of God. That's the difference between the wise and the unwise. 
The wise recognize that God is writing a story across history. He's a main player in the, in the story. And it's not a fake story. It's the true story. It's the real story. It's not going to show up on ESPN or C-SPAN or CNN or Fox News or be reported in any newspapers. But believe me, it is the story of history. And in the end, this will be the book of all books. It's the story that God is doing in and through his son to reconcile a people to himself and purge sin from the cosmos. That is the story that God is writing. And the wise recognize that by God's grace because we're all dumb and not wise normally. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, by his Holy Spirit, teaches us this. And he teaches us this through the scriptures that he has given. This is the story he's writing. He's given us a book so we can read ahead of time. We get in on the secrets, on the mystery. And it's not hard. It's not a secret as in he's trying to hide something from us. He put something in 66 books over a period of thousands of years that testifies to its unanimity and solidarity and consistency across the ages. Put it to the test. Put it to the test with your life. Put it to the test with what Grant told us a few minutes ago. That if you leave all for the sake of Christ, if he will not repay you a thousand times in this life and in the age eternal life. Either that man's a crazy man or he's the Lord of the universe. And the ultimate difference, like I said, between the wise and the unwise is whether or not they are consciously and intentionally living within this story. Wise people... Do not live as ignorant of God's plan. And wise people do not despise God's plan. That characterized the unwise. There are plenty of unwise. I was unwise at one time. Every Christian in this room was unwise. We were either ignorant of God's plan or we knew it and hated it. That's characteristic of all fallen humanity. Either we don't know which is the vast majority of the world, again referring to what Grant said about the thousands and thousands of pastors per Christian worker. I mean, even in our own country, we don't have nearly the saturation of the knowledge of God that one out of 230 should give. But nonetheless, worldwide, there's a vast ignorance of God's plan. And so there is a need for teaching and instruction from the Word of God, starting with the leaders of the churches, so they can take it back to their people and instruct them correctly. And that's what Sam and Grant were doing for that week in Ecuador. And then, but there's, but there's a whole other group of people that are unwise that are despising God's plan. They know what God's plan is. They just don't like it because it doesn't keep them at the center of it. And so the wise, though, those who are made wise by the scriptures, by the instruction and help of the Holy Spirit, by the church, wise people then are those who live a new lifestyle based upon what God is doing in the world and try to line their lives up with God and conform their lives to God's plan. So this section in chapter 5, verses 15 through 21, really forms the basis of everything else that's going to come in this letter. It's kind of the hinge, because it's a summary of a life of wisdom that's meant to impact all the areas of life that we're going to see in the coming weeks. Our home lives, our marriages, our parenting, our work lives, and the way we engage the world outside of our home and work. 
So foundational to all of these relationships is wisdom. And so this morning, I want to get into it and go verse by verse and try to mine out seven characteristics of a wise person. Okay, that's what I want to do this morning. Seven characteristics of a wise person. And there's one in each verse here this morning. Start with verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Number one, wise people are thoughtful. Wise people are thoughtful. Notice what Paul says here. He says, look carefully then how you walk. That is, give careful attention to how you conduct your day-to-day life. Look carefully, he says. Consider. Now, this call to look carefully contrasts sharply with what Paul says in verse 14, right? About the state of believers or unbelievers who are sleeping and in need to wake up. Right, in verse 14, he says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's like, wake up to the reality of life here. Look carefully, then, how you walk. The idea of careful looking communicates the importance of focused consideration about the path of our life and where it's taken us. One religious leader once said, By three methods we may learn wisdom. First, by reflection, which is noblest. Second, by imitation, which is easiest. And third, by experience, which is bitterest. Right? You can learn wisdom a lot of ways. You can learn wisdom by experience, by doing the wrong thing enough times to realize, wait, that's not going to work. But he says the most noble way is by reflection, by thinking it through. This means that wise people, brothers and sisters, we don't go with our gut on things. Contrary to what our culture tells us about being guided by our heart and trusting our feelings and going with what we feel is right, that is the path of stupidity. That's the path of ignorance. We don't go with our gut. We don't trust our instincts. Where has millennia of trusting instincts and going with the gut brought our world? No, Proverbs 4.26 tells us, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Or Proverbs 14.15, the simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. You want to be a simple person? Believe whatever you hear. You want to be a prudent person, a thoughtful person, a wise person? Think Think that through. Look carefully then how you walk. I want to say a word to younger people, our youth here. This is a temptation of, of all youth of all ages, I think. It's not unique to our generation particularly. It was, certainly wasn't unique to mine. But I think there is a great pressure upon young people and youth especially to chase cool instead of wisdom all throughout their teenage years. And they waste so many years in foolishness. Young people, don't chase cool. It's elusive. It's elusive. I mean, it's so hard to catch and keep. Because the the essence of cool is as soon as you get it, you're not cool anymore. Because then everybody's got it. So the the constant quest is to be right on the edge of what is almost mainstream, but then eventually becomes mainstream, and then you got to redo the quest again. He's dumb. 
just chasing your tail in a circle. I mean, why not devote yourself like the Lord Jesus did? There's a reason that Luke chapter 2 is in the Bible. That we get a picture of Jesus at age 12. And what do we see him doing? Pursuing wisdom. I mean, take the Bible this afternoon, teenagers, and read Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 52, and ask, what is Jesus doing, and does my life look anything like it? Because that's how you know if you're following Jesus as a teen. Do what Jesus did. Pursue wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of it. And Jesus modeled it for us so well. So wise people are thoughtful. Second point, wise people are intentional. Wise people are intentional. Verse 16, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Now this verse teaches that time is a precious commodity. It's precious. And we can, we can interact with this time that God has given us. We can interact with this life that God has given us in two ways. We can do it in a way that maximizes it or minimizes it, that makes an advantage out of it or wastes it, that invests it or blows it. That's that's scary, isn't it? That we can literally blow our lives away. We can waste them. And the way that we waste them is by not making the best use of the time, not redeeming it, not buying it back, He acknowledges here the days are evil. These are days that are filled with sin and evil. And yet Christians who are called to give thoughtful attention to their lives, be careful, consider it, the path of your feet and how you walk. Make the best use of time. Be intentional. See, wise people do this, and I'm still pursuing this level of wisdom because I have some plenty of remaining uh, foolishness in me. But wise people... Don't fritter their time away, but they prioritize things. And they prioritize them relentlessly. What this verse is calling us to do is strive to utilize every hour in a productive way, even if it's taking a nap. Because sometimes the most productive thing you can do is take a nap. But it's saying be intentional about your hours and the way your day is structured. Never before in history have so many, as I read at the beginning, the quote, so many potential distractions been offered to us. And we all need to take periodic inventory of how we're spending our time and how the use of our time measures up to kingdom values, right? Not me- Look, don't compare yourself to the Christians you know. Compare yourselves with the Bible, Now, as Christians, we should live lives of examples to each other. But the reality is is we can set a pretty low standard among ourselves. So the the quest is to go back to Scripture and say, how would Scripture call me to to make the best use of my time? I was thinking this week about Paul in in, in Philippians when he's writing the letter to the Philippians. And he's in jail, right? In chapter 1, he's writing about his experience. I mean, here's the guy who makes the best use of the time, right? He's sitting in prison, and what's he doing? writing letters to churches, evangelizing people. In other words, his mission doesn't stop just because his circumstances have changed. This is a man who's gripped by a call on his life, which Jesus knocked him off a horse to show him, 
but he's been gripped by this call on his life and he's prioritizing everything in light of it, which means put me in jail. It's not going to stop me. I'm going to make the best use of my time there. And I was just rebuked by that and challenged by that, that no matter what is thrown in our path, he's not being governed by his circumstances, is he? He's not being governed by what life throws at him or what trials come to his life. He's like, these trials, these difficulties don't in any way change my mission. And do we live like that? Or do we let, are we tossed back and forth by circumstances, allowing them to throw us off course and knock us off this way or that way or put us in a ditch this way or put us, or rather, do we absorb it? Do we pray? Do we seek the Lord? And then we just keep going forward because we know what we're supposed to be doing. There's a limited amount of time we have in life. And the way we live counts for eternity. And an intentional life is a life that's devoted to doing the good works we were created in Christ Jesus to do. Chapter 2, verse 10 of Ephesians, right? Created in, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, what are some of those good works? I think it has to do with the priorities that Ephesians lays out for us. For instance, the priority of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Wise people are intentional about cultivating their relationship with Christ, which means we're in the word. We're in prayer. We're memorizing scripture. We're striving to live a life in communion with Christ. We take seriously our, our intentional about our relationship with our, with our wives or our husbands if we're married, which means we prioritize investing in our marriage and don't let it seep into decay and distance. And when we encounter distance, which we've encountered in our own marriage, we pursue pulling that distance back together to pursue closeness and oneness together. Because life, unintentional life, unintentional living, just pull your marriage apart. And you have to intentionally find ways to pull it together, praying together, which is why we did the whole prayer initiative last month, trying to find ways that we can intentionally invest in our marriage relationships or investments with our children and grandchildren, right? Discipling them, making memories with them, seeking to invest in their lives, have fun with them that leaves indelible marks upon them. Or work, right, which is where we spend a third of our lives. We spend a third of our lives sleeping, a third of our lives at work. God must have something really important for our work that he intends to get done. See, this intentional life, that, this wise life, this intentional life is not lived outside of your sleep and your work, <laughs> It's lived in the midst of your work, which means wise people get a God-sized vision for what God has called them to do, and they don't just punch a clock and take a paycheck. They intentionally try to leave it better, leave their workplace better as a result of being there because they're a Christian. They're the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. Not the salt of the church and the light of the temple. The salt of the earth out there, the world. It matters. Eight hours a day matters. Big time. Or the church. We love the church. We build our lives in and around the church. We love the, our neighbors and make time for them. This means, and this is, the, this is the challenging word to us this morning, this means that wise people have to say no a lot. Because wise people happen to life. They don't let life happen to them. They're not driven by the needs of the moment. 
They're driven by their call. They're proactive, not reactive. Now, there's always a level of reactiveness in our lives. We never know how things are going to necessarily turn out. Believe it or not, God sometimes takes our schedule, right, brothers and sisters, and just burns it up. I mean, we don't get to write the script every day. So there's a level of reactiveness that we need to have, appropriate response, which means we're building margin into our lives and not being so driven by the clock and the calendar that we never have any time for anything other than what's written down. One writer said, The essence of time management is to set priorities and then to organize and execute around them. Setting priorities requires us to think carefully and clearly about values, about ultimate concerns. This then... These then have to be translated into long and short-term goals and plans once more into our schedules and time slots. Then, unless something more important, not something more urgent, but something more important comes along, we must discipline ourselves to do as we plan. Highly effective people carry their agenda with them. Their schedule's their servant, not their master. They organize weekly, adapt daily. However, they're not capricious in changing their plan. They exercise discipline and concentration and do not submit to moods and circumstances. They schedule blocks of prime time for important planning, projects, and creative work. They work on less important and less demanding activities when their fatigue level is higher. They avoid handling paper and email more than once and avoid touching paperwork and email unless they plan on taking action on it. Now that is from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of the best-selling business books in the world. But that sounds a lot like Ephesians 5.16 to me. I mean, the principles of that book are founded upon principles of God's Word. Sometimes they're applied in imbalanced ways, but nevertheless, he's talking about having an intentional life. There's another book I'd recommend, not a Christian book, but very consistent with Christian uh, essentialism by Greg McEwen. Fantastic about this. What he's trying to tell you to do is like, look, figure out what life's about and then devote yourself to it. That's, what, that's, that's the call. Now, he's not going to give you God's vision in Ephesians, but nonetheless, if we carry God's vision for Ephesians into this call to live an intentional life, it helps us sort through some of the chaos and help us navigate the demands of life in a fruitful way. So those are my first two points. First, first point, verse 15, wise people are thoughtful. Second point, wise people are intentional. Verse 16, let's pick up the pace. Number three, Wise people are biblical, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. See, wise people put a premium on discovering and, and living out the will of God. And this isn't a hidden will. He's not talking about finding out God's particular guidance for your life. That's, we sometimes speak of the will of God that way. This is figure out what God is doing at the macro level. We often don't understand what he's doing in the micro details. Okay, he's up, to, he's up to good, but we always can't see it. All right, But at the macro level, we understand what God is doing in the big picture. And, and he's saying, devote yourself to knowing that. Let me ask you a question. How well you know this book? How well do you know this book? I'm not talking about do you read it. I'm asking how well do you know it? Genesis to Revelation, what's the story? Could you give it a paragraph? This is not an academic exercise here. Wise people bleed Bible. Wise people are steeped deeply in Scripture, not as a theological exercise. Good grief. 